Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel, we have Alan Weimar. Hello. And Adi Anger. Hello, that was uh, <laughs> interesting. Hello, Alan. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to puberty again, sorry. <laughs> We're starting great already, isn't it? I'm Sasha Wall, and we have a special guest this week, as so often. And this week, this is Kevin Matthew. Kevin, why don't you tell everybody why we love you, why you're here, and what the topic of today's podcast is going to be. Awesome. Thank you for having me, everyone. And yeah, as uh, Sasha already mentioned, I'm Kevin Matthew. I work as a backend developer for a company that creates basically loyalty programs for brands. And we do this, all of it, it's on blockchain. And yeah, uh, so I do a bit of Web3 work. I don't necessarily write the smart contracts. I just write the programs that interact with it. Then a lot of backend work, as I already mentioned, and some other integrations as well. Apart from uh, my day job, I, my hobbies as well is in programming. And that's what I used to do most of in college. So just code, code, code the entire day and work on several different projects. And apart from that, I'm also quite into sports. I'm, I'm a cyclist as well as I go running as well. Just today I did a, did a 5K just because I had a very strong coffee and I had to burn off all the excess energy. <laughs> so my friends found it quite weird when I told them about it. Right, And I'm also a musician. I sing a little, I play the keyboard, I play the guitar as well. So for today's discussion over here, I will be talking mainly about blog that I wrote for Elixir School about running specific test cases with XUnit. Obviously, it's nothing very complex. It's just some minor details that most people don't really know about because I was in that situation myself and um, I used to have really funny workarounds which wasted a lot of time of mine. And then we will probably segue into general software engineering and how things really work, all of that. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it from me for now. Hey, there, there you heard it, folks. I'm actually curious, Kevin, how did you end up writing a blog post for Elixir School? Did, did they like get in touch, right? Like, what, what is the story there? How did you end up writing this blog post? So uh, it's actually nothing very fancy. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> thing is, this February, this year, February, I was just very interested in getting into open source development. I haven't done a lot of it, actually, and just wanted to give it a shot. And I was happy that I could do it in Elixir because uh, not to just please people that are on this on this panel, but I love this language quite a lot. And it has given me the job that I have now, and I really love my job as well. So it was very emotional for me when I started with the open source development. Coming to Elixir School, how I got to it, I wanted to just find a way to give back to that resource from where I learned and a lot of other people themselves also learned from. And so the best way for me to do is, or at that point, was to write a blog. I can't write a lesson because... Anything you can think of is covered in it. There's nothing new mm -hmm. or more to write. So a blog post, whatever you found interesting, you just write up and then I scrounged a little. There's nothing about tests. And the way to contribute to Elixir School blogs is that you just go to their GitHub repo, just clone it and then just fork it. I'm sorry. Just fork it and then create a write a blog and then open a PR. That's it. And then somebody will merge it and it's live. That's all there is to it. <laughs> Nice. I actually didn't know that you that you could just do it through GitHub. That uh, I mean, probably could have just read it on their website, right? But, but it, it is news for me. So like for for whoever hears this and it's like, wait, I can do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Elixir School. If, if you're surprised by the amount of blog posts coming in, we're we're at fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And actually, it was again, it kind of felt that most people might not know about this because the frequency of the amount of blog posts that are made over there is quite few. I think the last one that I saw was in 2021 or 2020, probably. Oh, okay. Yeah, and mine is the latest one in 2023. Okay. So probably not a lot of people know about it. Yeah, I think that's potentially also a good pick for later, right? Yeah, <laughs> so two new things we learned today. Yeah, indeed. So um, how did you, like, I mean, like you said, you, you scrounged the, the, the blog already a little bit about, okay, what kind of topics are already covered, not a lot about testing. I think in your blog post, you also go about a, a specific thing on how to run all specific tests. How was this useful for you? And like, did was this something you already knew before? Was this something like you just kind of on accident discovered while writing the blog post? Or was this also the same thing where you like solved a specific problem at a job? Right? Like, what, what's the story there? Okay, so the story over here is uh, it all started with my job. I just, I just graduated just a little over two, just a little over two years ago. And this is my first job here. And the requirement for this was Elixir. I had to learn it. The 
and uh, the thing was over there that so my tech lead over there he just he's very particular about writing tests like if you write a function you write a test if you don't write a test don't bother using it i know somebody else which is also very particular <laughs> about writing tests yeah. i forgot his name i don't know <laughs> ari can you refresh my memory <laughs> so he's very particular about that and i was quite happy that there's someone like that over there because although the projects that i did while i was in college while i was an undergrad I just made an MVP. I didn't know anything about software mm-hmm. engineering practices and never wrote a test in my life properly. And this was the first time I was introduced to tests. And now the problem over there was since I'm new, I'm also introduced to a huge code base and that has mm-hmm. its own test for controllers, for context functions, for DB models, everything. And if I want to run a very small test on a very small feature that I worked on, first one is i just run mix test and every all the tests will run uh, so the, the way we have it is we have umbrella apps so seven dif- tests for seven different apps all together which is quite in- inefficient the other thing what i could do is mix test and the path to the test file that so yeah i just run the test cases in those files but again what if that file has 400 tests i can't just run 400 tests every time then the next idea was you know what i'll do i'll just comment out all the tests that i don't need so i comment out all the tests that i don't need and then obviously that you run into errors that the do block is not closed there's an extra end keywords so i often used to run into such situations but then i came across this coworker of mine who just by mistake he just wrote this at tag and then some keys over there a key value pair and he pushed it into his pr and then i was just wondering what it is so i just asked him about it and then he said yeah well so you can just tag tests like this and then run that very specific test you don't need to comment out anything you don't need to put the whole file path out of my mind was instantly blown like <laughs> you just write one statement and then you know what to do right and the beauty of that was that you can actually group it together so if you want to run two different tests you don't need to run two com- two commands together you can just put the same tag for it and those two tests are run. done that's it so it was very impressive for me and uh, the fact that i didn't know about it is because while learning elixir or x unit or anything i never came across it nor did a lot of people i went through a lot of learning resources youtube videos but yeah nobody really spoke about it and elixir school also didn't have a blog focusing specifically on tests and so i thought yeah why not just write about it and then let a lot more people know about this and save a lot more time wasted like this the way i did so yeah, that's sorry that makes a lot of sense to me but i'm but i'm now i'm curious like are is at tech something you also tend to employ in in your testing practice because honestly i give the testing guru of the podcast not gonna lie <laughs> <laughs> well, I use tags for a lot of things. I think I think grouping tests is something I share sometimes, but I do it for like making my setup blocks better, you know, like setting like a what they call a context, mm-hmm. right? A per test. I use tags for those quite a bit. Yeah, I think I think running tests, I don't I very rarely run tests by running a command. It's, it's generally in my environment I have a script set up that dispatches with the lines that I want to run or like a, a reader that keeps reading based on what files I save it keeps on tests yeah, right because yeah. I, I do TDD I have tests written already so generally that is my approach but I mean it's, it's very interesting to hear Kevin say that you know yeah I mean a lot of like uh, resources books and blog posts and maybe YouTube videos don't cover you know a lot of these things but I think that's where I think Elixir I think is a little different from other languages where the best resource is hex docs right and i think if you go through mixed test i've not checked their hex docs in a while but i am willing to bet anything that this that will be there there you know and i think that's also something i think maybe us as an elixir community should like promote more that hey you know read hex docs like i don't know 5% of your you know if, if you code 100 hours maybe spend like a couple hours uh, reading hex docs and stuff like that i know one thing i read still very recently i want to say like last year that you could run two different line numbers by just adding another colon so mix mm-hmm. test yeah, test that. file name 10 and then colon 20 it runs those two wow. i did not know that until i read hex docs in last year or something it was like it's still a, i think i would say like elixir 1.6 or something feature but yeah it's stuff like that that's why it's good to keep checking docs and that's a great thing with elixir that docs are a huge part of the ecosystem and that's what something jose has kept since day one of elixir so yeah yeah absolutely so yeah hex docs is a very great resource that way so after learning about tag that's when i went back to it like, how did i even miss this 
<laughs> yeah, so it was quite yeah. interesting that way. I think, I mean, you're pointing something interesting out there in that I feel, especially when you've been in the industry for a while and not necessarily that much involved in Elixir yet, that you kind of expect the default documentation to suck. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I could imagine a fair share of people out there maybe already being somewhat familiar with Elixir, but never really having dug into Hexdoc that much because, well, it's the official documentation. What are you supposed to expect, right? Um, but just to take plus one there, like the, honestly, like the, the documentation mindset of the Elixir community in at large is like amazing, top-notch. So uh, yeah. if you haven't, do it. <laughs> yeah, I think one more thing to also add to this is I think not just Elixir, I think last, I want to say like last 10 years or so, there has been like a very, I don't know, kind of like targeted way of like putting pressure on the each program language community to focus on documentation. Look at all the new mm. languages coming out, Rust, Elm. Oh my God, the documentation was ridiculously good, right? Python has increased it so much. They've like created the new ways of doing documentation. Even Haskell has good documentation, <laughs> right? So, I don't believe you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but seriously, I, I think not. I think Elixir is like part of that like new generation of languages that is embracing the fact that, okay, not having documentation is a type of tech debt, right? That everyone yeah, incurs. So yeah, I think, not just Elixir, but like learning like any of these new modern languages, check out the documentation. Rust has some amazing documentation, for example. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. I think, I think it makes a lot of sense. I also think it's interesting, like what you said earlier, Kevin, about using the text and, and tests to run only specific subsets of tests, because my workflow is super different from yours there. And that is fine, right? Like uh, both work. I mean, I've, for a while, I was a very avid SpaceMax user. So like Emacs with like a specific pre-configuration around uh, the spacebar and like kind of using the Vim key bindings. Um, as far as I know, the project is kind of grinded to a halt. And also, I mean, it's Emacs, it's Elisp, and like updating dependencies really gets, <laughs> becomes a pain after a while. So, like, after using it for like, I think two years it was, I, I migrated away to Visual Studio Code just because it was more convenient. But there is one thing I really, really, really miss about SpaceMax, and that is like you had super convenient ways to like switch between the implementation file and the test file. There was just shortcuts for that, and it always, it just worked. And you could then like in the test file say, like on your cursor, hey, this te like this test on my cursor level, just run this. Or just just run this. Then it would do oh, that wow. automatically in like a little buffer on the side. And if you went back to the implementation thing, you could then use a shortcut to say, hey, the last set of tests I ran, run those, run those again, please. <laughs> and that was such a nice workflow. Not gonna lie. <laughs> I never was able to quite reproduce it in, in Visual Studio Code. Probably you can, but I just well, it went out of the box, you know. So like, right, yeah. Yeah. and that is also like a super perfectly fine way of doing things, right? Um, I tend to my test case files tend to be relatively small. So like I mean, you said earlier, four hundred test cases in a file. I was like, oh boy, I would break that up, <laughs> right? But I mean. Sometimes you work on legacy projects also where these things happened over time and like there's really nobody to blame and those blaming doesn't really make it better. Right? So like at that point in time, having something like like text, for example, to reach for just to being able to say, hey, I want a specific run to run a specific subset of tests. Yeah, it's good that we have all these tools. Absolutely. And then I like how the emphasis is on on the docs, especially in the Elixir community, because I do this quite often. I go into hex docs just to see how a certain function is implemented. For example, we have native functions within Elixir, say, enum.map. Mm. And I want to know how, how is the map function implemented. I just need to go to hex docs. And then find the set, find the section where map is explained. And then there's a little icon over there with the code, with the brackets. And then just click yeah. it and it takes you to the GitHub repo. It's fantastic. And yeah. just imagine doing this in any other language. I come mainly from C, C++, JavaScript, Python, nothing of that sort. And the thing about the other languages is, is that it's so customizable that every person, every programmer has their own way of doing things, especially when it comes to JavaScript. So if, even if you wanted to write a test, you go online, you try to learn it, you're just learning one person's interpretation of things. Yeah, that is that is what I don't like quite a lot instead of having something standardized. So imagine you're just working at one company or one project, you move on to something else. They use a completely different way of doing writing things, structuring things, testing anything, all of that. So in Elixir, that is what really helped me, especially with the open source development. I just didn't waste time to see how it is structured, why is it structured this way. I just knew that this folder, this is going to be there and this place, this test will be there. 
I know it for sure. Yeah, I think there's like a little bit of a of a tendency for, for some engineers in the Elixir space to put test files next to the actual code file, right? Like not having a separate test folder, but saying, okay, I actually put my, my test files directly into the same folder as the code that gets compiled. I've seen people do that, and I think there's an argument to be made for it. Basically, you don't have to... Adi goes like, what? I've never, I've never seen that in Elixir. I've seen people I've do seen it. Rust and other languages. Yeah, it, I've it, never it, seen it in Elixir. I've seen it, especially people which have a Rust background do that. And I, honestly, I, I, can, I, can, I can see the value of it. Because, I mean, why are we putting things in the test folder? Give me a good reason for it, right? <laughs> dependencies? Not needing some... I, mean, I don't know. I mean, yeah, different dependencies, right? <laughs> well, but, the, but the compiler doesn't care about the EXS files, which is the test, right? Like they does, does, It just ignores it. But yeah. Um, oh, 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 you mean not in the same file? Not in the same file. In this, like in this, same, uh, same having a folder. Parent. Hmm. Yeah. So like you might have like your lib whatever dot controller and then you have a controller test directly next to it. And I think there's an argument to be made for, for having structure like that. But that's besides the point. In general, when you come, uh, what I wanted to go to, <laughs> except for like some of these, these little opinionated differences in, in, when you come to an approaching in Elixir, things are there where you expect them to be, right? In general. Exceptions, <laughs> there's exceptions to that rule, but in general, like you kind of know where to look. I think there's also a, a big strength in general of how OTP helps us structure applications, right? Like if you really want to understand what does this thing even do? Well, a good starting point is the application, right? Like what does this thing start? Which other dependencies do get started? And then you can kind of hang from there. So like having this structure and also having this, this opinion nation in, in the default tools helps a lot in not having to relearn the specific flavor of the language for every single project you come across. Um, in, in general, from my experience, and I've seen a fair bunch of Elixir projects at this point, there's rarely any really weird surprises in them. Like some, sometimes people go overboard with macros and then you're like, what the heck is happening here? But a part of that, Things are where you expect them. At least that has been my experience so far. I'm actually curious to ask this to Alan because Alan, man, you're also doing a lot more freelancey work. Where I could imagine working on existing code bases. Has this been your experience so far as well? You mean the test files next to those? Uh, no. I mean <laughs> rather like things being where you expect them to be. Actually, yes, I would say so to a certain extent. I mean, I kind of know where to start because you always start from kind of the application. Uh, EX file. And then from there, you can kind of figure out which things are running. And then if it's a Phoenix one, then you, you know which routes to take a look at. So there's most part things kind of make sense. But there's sometimes where like you see something like, what, why is that? You know, what is that? And uh, I think the most difficult part of any application is really the database structure. Because sometimes people do their, they have an idea and it, it doesn't really make sense, I think, when you when you think about it. Or like they just kind of, I don't know, it, when you're in consulting, right, you tend to be quick. Like, let me just do this thing and let me just kind of hack it in there because, you know, the client's yelling at you or they don't want to pay enough for you to really do a really solid solution. So you get kind of like this code that's not so nice. And so like, for instance, I, I had this recent thing where one of my guys, he's usually in Taiwan. I'm based out of Hong Kong. We have about the same time zone. But he's in Brazil with his family, visiting some family over there. And uh, the issue we have is like he did this data structure and it didn't really make sense to us. So we had to wait till at night or early in the morning to get a hold of him. And we even asked him, like, you know, what, what does this stuff even mean? Because like we think this is what it means. He's like, actually, uh, I forgot. So like even for this one, we, we don't have like we don't have like the documentation saying, OK, this is the structure. When these fields are filled in, this is what it means. When these ones are filled in, this is what it means. So maybe I'm kind of long winded about this whole story. But I mean, in the end, it's like the hardest part I find is just like the logic and the data structure, really the hardest parts to find. But finding where everything is, I think it's pretty straightforward, especially if you follow like the, the naming structure where it's like the top level level, so you call it the, the app dot folder name dot name of the file, right? No, hard, it. Sorry, one more hard thing I also find too is how do I know should I make a new context or not? Like that's also another difficult part I find. But I think that is like that's fair, right? Like if the complexities of grokking a code base boils down to well what does the logic of that particular code, uh, code base do, right? Like, what is the logic here? What do, what do things do? What does it do in general? And if that is the if that is the thing you need to grok, then in general, you can say that that's a good thing. And where you don't have to first understand what is the structure of the code base, right? Making it do drawing a parallel to something of the it's not necessarily specific to the DDD community, domain driven design, but it's something often used by them is um, this comparison between essential complexity and usually called accidental complexity. I'm not sure if, if you heard that before, but essential complexity is really 
just that. It's the complexity of the product, of the code base at hand, like what really is the business rules, for example, right? The, the thing it really does, that where it delivers value. And accidental complexity as well, the accidental kind of comes on top. There's always a certain level of accidental complexity. I mean, like you need to deploy the things. You, if you, for example, run the Kubernetes cluster, right? Like it needs, it needs to be packaged in a Docker container somehow, and it needs to be shipped into a running pod into the, into the cluster. And that is a level of complexity that is not essential to the product or to the problem at hand, but it's still there. And but accidental complexity can also come from a whole other slew of sources. Like, for example, you look at the code base and you're like, I am not even sure where to start, right? And that in itself is also <laughs> accidental complexity. So yeah, I'm not sure I would 100% agree with like the hard thing to work is the database structure because that, that sounds dangerously like database-driven development to me. But in, in general, I, I get what you're saying. And people do build their applications that way, though. Yeah, you know? they, they and do. And it's whether or not they should, right? And that's what Alan's point is. And I think, you know, that, I mean, in a production environment, when it, once the database is there, a structure is there, it's very hard to change it. You because you, yeah, you yeah, have yeah. real data to play with. Code, you can still change and, you know, whatever, build boundaries. But from a data, data perspective, it, it's very hard to change. And how a lot of people code is very data-driven. They think in terms of, you know, those entities. And that influences their entire code base for good. <laughs> so I've experienced that too. Uh, it, I, luckily, none of the places I've experienced that have been crazy, but I could see a company building their application driven by how database looks and not change it for a few years and like it go totally, totally wrong. I can totally see that happening. Oh, no, that is, <laughs> I, I don't understand why would anyone do that, but yeah. Usually it just happens because nobody has feels like they have ownership or like have the time to do it properly. Like when, when you always have pressure in your neck. Well, yeah, then you add another column to that one database table that already has 100 columns. But uh, <laughs> what, what is one more column going to hurt, right? And I, I've yeah. one time I've been in a place where we had a database where there was one, one, one table with, I'm not even joking, 200 columns. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, oh, I mean, at that point, migrations and changes become very hard to do. And that's a problem with like calling it an MVC framework, like yeah. especially mm -hmm. models getting tied to the data, right? You 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 are kind of like uh, uh, you're you're assuming that your entire entire like request response cycle is tightly coupled with model, which for a lot of people is the data database, right? And I think that that's why, like, when you think of a solution, you think in terms of columns and you're like, oh, to have this flag throughout this little pipeline, I need to put that in the database. You don't, oh, because I'm playing with X data structure, it needs to be in that. You don't create a new column unless the relationships dictate you know, to create a new column, right? <laughs> Which it, it, it's, 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 it's quite interesting. And I think this kind of problem happens, you know, I want, I want to say like after maybe the first, I don't know, if in the software development lifecycle, if you do a bar, uh, like a bell, whatever curve, right? After the first quadrant, right? The, the growing pains and this kind of problem happens only after that. And a lot of people like using Elixir mm -hmm. right now, still new, the MVP phase. I don't think, that, I think they're yet to hit that. A lot of companies, at least that I talk to, but but yeah, it, it could totally be a real problem. Two hundred columns is crazy. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a, it was a very very big, very old application. I think they literally. I mean, that that has been ten years ago, nearly. And they started that project. I'm not lying on Java one point zero. So that that's how old it was. <laughs> but yeah, um, I'm actually. I mean, I wonder if there's like a. I feel like I feel like there's a connection between like where we started from with like the tests, right, and and, and like, like this complexity growing over time. Um, usually, when I when I see complex projects like that, those are often also projects that have uh, very much a lack of tests. And I wonder if if there, there is like a connection there, right? Like if you actually take testing more seriously and like have a higher level of auto unit and integration and potential to end-to-end -end test, if that level of complexity can even, I mean, it can still happen, but maybe if that is, there's already like, an, like a tendency there to make it easier, to make it less, more simple because, well, then it's easier to test. I'm not sure. I think there is something there. Yeah, but I'm not sure to what extent it will be. If you're building something really complex, then you would need to have tests. You don't want someone new to work on it. And then there, have you seen the episode of Silicon Valley wherein they hire this guy to work on their cloud systems and then ends up screwing up everything? And the guy is called the Carvo. So they, ha they hire a freelancer like this to work on their cloud systems. So anyway, yeah, 
So to know that whatever mistakes this person did has been reverted and the system works properly as it was before, they had to just run the tests and do it. So in the same case, when I was new and I was working on something, to know that I didn't mess up anything else. So it could be possible that a context function is changed somewhere and then there's no test for it because we thought, hey, this is going to be simple. And But something did change, in fact, and some other controller somewhere else has been affected because of it. Yeah. We wouldn't know if, if the change has happened unless somebody finds out that there's a problem. So in order to avoid such things and when you're building something really big, something useful, something that is meaningful, it really makes sense to have all the tests in place that you need. Yeah. I totally agree with that. I, I think I think what Sasha was getting at was say you're say you're testing something, right? You 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 work on a feature and you're testing something, and you're like, how the heck am I even going to test it? That's probably also a symptom to maybe a, a a possibility that the implementation of your solution is way too complex. Is that what you were getting at, Sasha? That's that's how I interpreted it. Yeah, basically, I mean, it was a bit, it's still very vague in my head. But when I think about like some of these, I mean, like one of his projects had 200 columns. We also had some of the Java classes that grew over those years. I, I came in much later. Uh, there were some classes that were like 40,000 lines, right? Like, so those, those things existed. And at that point, if you don't already have tests, and I'm not sure how the testing situation was at the beginning. I think it was a lot better later on. Like how, how do, how the frick do you test something like that? <laughs> right? So I, I'm more wondering if you have like a healthy test practice right like you have a healthy test setup where you where you do regularly write tests maybe even tdd right like i'm a big tdd proponent if that is like kind of already in itself like a like a counterweight towards this level of of, of complexity having these like super big files and with code having these these very large database tables with like lots of duplication potentially right because well to keep it easy to test to to, to have this practice you kind of have to break it down further you know yep. what, you know what I'm, what I'm getting at because that is also like when I every time I had to work with legacy code of like a, with like a specific level of complexity I mean this is an extreme example I just mentioned but still all of I would presume all of us have, uh, had to at some point touch legacy code that was untested I always write always 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 start with writing tests <laughs> and then I try to break it down right so yeah I don't know it's the test of these the safety net like where you also that is like something I realized very painfully throughout my career is it's really not only about writing the test in the moment right now to know the thing I'm, I'm building right now works as I expect to do that is a very nice bonus point but honestly the biggest value of tests is that safety net for doing changes later on so for example refactoring but I mean it's there's a reason why TDD is the cycle of red green refactor and the refactoring part step is non-optional so like I, I I'm very much very big at TDD proponents so like I really try to do like a red test and I, then I do the sm- simplest possible uh, implementation that could satisfy this red test. And I kind of take this mindset of, if I was super lazy, what is the laziest way to solve this? <laughs> right? Like, often that means returning hard-coded stuff. And then you kind of have to, you have to, basically you have to trick yourself into, okay, how do I need to write the tests now to actually force myself to write the real deal, right? Like where I can no longer trick the tests, so to speak. You can make a little game out of that. And then like every time, like after that, you reflect the reflector, reflector, and you end up with some code that is well-tested, that does the thing you want to do, and you have a very high level of confidence that well, all cases are covered because you went, you did this little game with yourself of like, how, how can I how can I trick the tests to not really do the real deal? And honestly, it can be fun. <laughs> but if if you have like a super big, large code, uh, comp- large chunk of complex legacy code that is like has a lot of internal state potentially right like a lot of branching branches then well it's hard to write tests for that and it's hard to see all the potential states this thing can be so if i were under time pressure and somebody says hey we have to ship this feature like tomorrow and if if you don't do it right like we are in big trouble then yeah i I would just add another if else thing in there and call it a day <laughs> right because i wouldn't have a trust on myself to understand this in the short time frame and then to change 
and simplify it without having a safety net such as test. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's where I was getting at mainly about the safety net being there, just so that you know that you haven't messed up anywhere. Yes, yeah. for open source projects, right? You don't want to say you forked and cloned the Phoenix project you wrote somewhere and you have a typo somewhere and then you don't know where if it changed without the tests or not. Yeah, so it's quite a good safety net that way. And basically to understand, right? Have I done the right thing? Have I, is my code good enough? And all of that, those things. So, That's where I think the, again, my favorite thing to say, the 100% code coverage is also yeah. so, so important, right? I mean, I, I've been actually trying to go a step further with 100% like real coverage in my recent projects. And it makes a huge difference like again you will if you could do it early on in a project and i don't think it's that much work to do it but maybe i'm just used to it that's why i don't think it's a lot of work it as kevin and sasha both pointed out that it gives it safety net it, it really becomes so much useful when the project becomes so big that you cannot comprehend its entire domain in one sitting right like oh combination of everything that can go wrong you know it's going to get that big at some point right if you if you're working for a moderately successful company or whatever or building a moderately successful it's a successful product. So that's where the 100% code coverage stuff really gets awesome. And yeah, I'm not going to miss out on opportunity to plug 100% code coverage. <laughs> you kind of made me come around on this. The first time you proposed it, I was like, I'm not sure. But I think there's an argument to be made. And I've, I've been incorporating it in my own work and also in my own That's awesome. discussions with colleagues. Honestly, because I mean, like, usually when you talk about this, people say like, yeah, we do 80% or 70%. And then, then I go, okay, what about the other 20, 30%? They're just, I don't know. Right. Just the the I I don't care percentage. Like, what is exactly. that? Right. Here's here's also what I say. Like say you're like something is generated. You don't want to test it, right? Explicitly ignore it, right? Yeah, Still exactly. keep it at hundred percent. Because if you put it eighty percent, and if you test only eight out of ten new lines, your CI will still pass. You want to test ten out of ten new lines, right? You need to explicitly ignore what you're not testing and 100% have 100% code coverage on everything else. So anyway, I, I've said it so many times. I think the listeners might have, might be bored of it. So yeah, but but I, but I think there's even like you, how do you do ignore it? Ignore it? Do we do it like in the in the code like where, where the actual code is? Yeah. So if it's like a file, ignore it in the coveralls. There's a coveralls, for example, or use ignore the entire file. I rarely do it. But yeah, put it in the code. Yes, magic comments don't look good. But it's, in my opinion, it's better than explicitly ignoring something or, or, or implicitly ignoring something. I think there's also value in that to be had, right? Like if you come to a project with this mindset and then you see in a specific code file, you see, okay, this thing is ignored. You know, okay, if I change that, right? Like this is not going to be called right. by a test. So you see that immediately being... It's documented. Out. Yeah, It's exactly. documented, yeah. yeah. So there, there's even value in that. Like magic comments, yeah, they are not pretty, but at that point, like you, you can see, well, if that thing over there, if I change it, things might break and the test might still be green. Right. And I would even take it a step further if in the companies where I get to dictate these things and the startups that I have been founding engineer or team member, I've built the projects. I usually put the magic comments with a due date and I built a small tool to CI breaks when the due date is passed. And it, you can run it periodically, whatever, how you want to run it. But it's also like, if you don't put a due date, it breaks. If you put a due date and it's past that, it breaks. It, it, it's like, explicitly thinking about, okay, this code is not being tested right now, but doesn't mean we're not going to think about it anytime in the near future. So I take it like a little further than maybe I need to. I get that. It's an obsession. But <laughs> I think 100%... I think 100% is still, I think, a reasonable thing to say. And I, you don't have to go to a place where you ignore with due dates. I get that. that that's a little, that's a little, yeah, but, so but, that's but, but even then, I mean, crazy is always, always so judgmental, but even then that you can have, you can do it in different ways. Like you can have a, C, a specific CI check that breaks, right? Like that, that exactly. break your main pipeline. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So like there, there are ways to go about this. I'm actually curious, like, like, like Kevin, I mean, like you have not been not that, not that long in the industry, right? Like what, what do you think when you hear Adi talk, what has guru talk about this i'm curious like because i mean alan adi and me this is like a recurring theme honestly <laughs> so give me your perspective on like what do you think about like test coverage and well, writing tests in that kind of fashion test coverage is again a related topic to how we spoke about safety nets earlier that yeah you're basically testing everything that you did and then it works as expected all of that but in my case i've never really found it to be an uh, important metric so to say 
that you write 100% coverage because the philosophy is that whatever you write, make sure that it is testable, all of that. Now, and there are certain things that we don't really necessarily need to put it in the test. For example, if you're trying to maybe connect to a, a message queue, for example, in the test, like generally don't don't really need to do it. And even I think I yeah, it's Broadway. Yeah. Broadway also has a certain way of testing it as well without actually starting an instance and creating the supervision tree for all of those things. So the important things that likely to break, so to say. Things like connecting to the message queue and all of that, DB models, maybe, where things don't change often. Things that don't necessarily change often. So that is good to, rather, we don't really need to test them. And if something does break, we'll just find out really quickly. If you do, if you do change something, then you obviously need to test it locally as well and then see if it actually works and all of those things. Yeah. So as a metric, we never really considered 100% code coverage as highly compulsory but just that whatever you do write make sure it is testable so i I think i'm probably saying something very contradicting i don't know from your i I think i think you're saying something which is very much like what you usually hear about the topic and like i I mean like what adi's position is very extreme in that sense but there's merit there's merit to it that's why i was curious so the extreme version is not 100 percent i'm I'm saying explicitly ignore it. Yeah, the real yeah, coverage yeah, is not 100%, thing. right? Like, yeah. instead of saying some things are not important in your mind and letting it be subjective, that is the thing. Tum- yeah. Explicitly ignore it and test 100% of the rest of the things, right? Mm-hmm. So, the reason why, I mean, this has been from experience and of working in systems, especially that are like, especially like very Microsoft and distributed, there's no way for you to test things locally for certain things. And and yes, certain things about distributed, like I said, like uh, subscribing to message queue and stuff, you know, you don't have to test as part of your CI, right? But there might be other aspects of the distributed things you might want to test. Like, I don't know, like a, if you have a GraphQL API, maybe the, your schema file needs to be updated, up to date with the other, the expected schema file, right? So anyway, I, I feel like it's important to be explicit about what you're not testing. And I get that even for whatever reason that feels extreme. In my mind, that's not extreme. Extreme is I go for now 100% real code coverage, including the ones that you, you talked about. But that's, again, a different story. <laughs> yeah, but I think there's an interesting like little overlap between what you're saying, Adi, and also what, what Kevin has been saying. But like, Kevin, because you've, you've been saying, um, and I'm just going to paraphrase here, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but like you only test like what needs to be tested. Like We trust you to figure that out, right? But that is it. This is in your head. Because it's an mm-hmm. implicit thing you think. And somebody else out there might think, well, obviously that thing over there is tested and the other is not. But there might be a mismatch and that mismatch is an implicit one. It's not visible. And in all my years working as a software engineer, that's where shit breaks. <laughs> if one person thinks A and the yeah. other person thinks B, that's where break, things break. And that is like why there's like, I'm very much a fan of making the implicit explicit. There's a level where you have to kind of kind of find a balance. And there's a very great article. I think I mentioned it a few times throughout the podcast already. I think it's from somebody of a core Rust contributors where they write about this code having this Im- implicit footprint. Um, I forgot how they called it. Like basically the idea of how much context do you need to hold in your head to understand a certain piece of code. They had a name for that, I forgot. And there is a, there's a sweet spot you want to hit because if you write out everything explicitly, there's a whole lot of boilerplate. I mean, look at earlier Java versions, right? With getters and setters, everything written out explicitly, blah, 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 blah. Nobody read that. And that's also where sometimes bugs were hiding because, well, most of the time they were auto-generated and sometimes you maybe wrote, wrote them and confi- changed them and then there was a subtle bug at them and then, but nobody read that code because, well, it's getters and setters, right? So there might be bugs hiding in there. So this level of explicitness is not great. At the same time, a super low level of explicitness, so a lot of things being implicit, that can also be hard to grok. And honestly, that has been my experience with a lot of very poorly aged Ruby on Rails modulars, <laughs> where there were certain pieces of code that were doing things like through convention and everything, but like also configured convention, some things turned on, some things turned off, and you were looking at that code and you were like, why does it do this? Where Where is the code doing this? I don't understand. <laughs> and that is a level of like mental footprint like where you need so much to know about a system to even be able to read a piece of code and why am i saying all of this just to coming back right to say okay i have a specific piece of code and i have to choose to not write test for it that's at the moment i think and honestly that's no critique to you specifically or anybody else but that is a very common uh, way to approach this it's obvious right it's obvious which things are supposed to be tested and which are not 
But well, often yes, but sometimes no. <laughs> and then making that explicit, well, why not? Why the heck would you not? True. So this I think is, I think, just, where Adi is coming from, right? Uh, just to make. I mean, yeah, true. So I just, I think it's just we need to find a balance, and then if you're working in the team, you just come to a general consensus about what is important, and then what should we actually test, and what is okay not to be tested, but as long as it doesn't break. Yeah. So the implicit, explicit thing, I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah. As long as everyone agrees on what what we do, then it's fine. Yep. But yeah. 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 My current team doesn't have hundred percent code coverage because I am not. I'm probably the most senior in the team, but we don't have a team lead or something, and you can't make a decision. I mean, if it was in my hands, I would do it. But you're right. Like consensus is important, <laughs> right? I think everyone approaches engineering software development differently, and I think that's something to keep in mind. What I feel comfortable with is different from what others feel comfortable with, uh, yeah. even though they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Obvious, like objectively <laughs> wrong, right? <laughs> Can I take this snippet and share it with your colleagues, Adi? <laughs> they listen to the podcast, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I found the article again. It's like the Rust Language Economics Initiative from March 2nd, 2017. And the word, and the term, term he's, print, he's like coining there is the reasoning footprint. The reasoning footprint is the amount of knowledge you need to hold in your head to understand a certain piece of code. So it's such a beautiful way to look at it, honestly. In that article, there's a bit really big, they make the argument about, okay, there's implicit and explicit, and you want to strike this balance. And especially for somebody which is maybe new to a code base, well, obviously they don't have so much, so many inform information yet in their head. So like you want to be potentially be more on the side of the explicit, while somebody, well, which has been working with a code base for like five years, everything is obvious to them, right? Doesn't mean it's obvious to a newcomer. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's, I, I like to use that as like a, it's not really a metric, it's a bit, maybe a bit too high, but to keep this idea in my head, okay, like how much do I need to understand? How much do I need to know about this code space before making this piece of code make sense? If you can keep that level low without being too boilerplate then yeah, go for it. What do you guys feel about specifically changing your code just so you can test it. I I mean, like I, there are certain scenarios in which you have to do that every time, especially when it comes to date time shenanigans, right? Where you're in a kind of one, okay, I, this thing should do something with a date time, and now I, and it by default maybe uses now, and then like you kind of have to inject the now. <laughs> I there's this very small I feel a group a very small tipping point in which it can either be like perfectly fine right like I mean in the case of date time now well that's just a necessary evil so to speak but sometimes it can also be a smell sometimes it can be a smell that there maybe here there are multiple concerns mixed into the same code base and you're potentially better off in separating those but this is this is really hard to see sometimes. Well, let me be a little bit more particular. Let, sorry, maybe, maybe let me say it like this. One of the trickiest bits to test, right? So I, obviously that's what, what Sasha just mentioned is one of the classic problems, right? What's the, what day is today? And that's going to implement, that's going to mess with your stuff, right? Now, what about this one? Like if you're doing something like Cypress where you're testing front-end interactions, because right now I'm working with a team and they always like to use this data hyphen test equals and then some value. And they match against that rather than, you know, looking for a class or something like that. I think it, that is a smell. I think, I mean, like what I've been seeing people do there, and I think there's really an argument to be made for it, is if you look at accessibility, for example, from day one for your product and you say, okay, how do I make this page, for example, accessible to screen readers? Well, flash news, what screen readers are doing is very similar to what testing tools are doing. <laughs> so if your page is very well accessible for a testing tool, then spoiler, it's also going to be in general pretty well accessible for um, somebody with a screen reader. I don't necessarily know it's a code smell. I think so. Why again? Uh, feel free to like correct me if you guys disagree or if you guys think I'm wrong. Why some code would be code smell in this case would be because if you're making it like less readable or slower or whatever you want to call it to make it testable, right? I think readable might be the biggest concern, right? So if you're adding like tags to your HTTP element so, if, so it's easier to read by Cypress or whatever you're doing it, if that, and that's decreasing the readability of the code, then it's a code smell. But if you do it in a way where in, if in test environment, that component adds the test attribute, but not in, you know, if a flag is turned on through application configuration, if you do it that way, I think you can minimize 
uh, you know, you can push yourself in that uh, a non-code smell side of the spectrum a little bit. So I try to keep these things at the configuration layer as much as I can. I know it gets harder the more specific you get and try to keep the interface in this case, which the interface for the engineers, which is a code, um, the components identical to what it'd be in a, in a non-test environment, but the implementation could have some, you know, configuration details. Like if it's a test environment, add this attribute. If it's non non-test environment, don't and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So there's ways to make it, you know, not code smelly, but it is it is definitely pushing <laughs> pushing the boundaries a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I think what the litmus test is, right? Like, well, what the thing is you can use to determine is this a smell or is it not? Is like, what's the underlying motivation behind doing this, right? Like, well, what was the motivation and like the way you came to that decision? Was it an informed decision potentially of saying, okay, like we want to minimize impact here, right? Like, this is, we looked at other options, for example, embracing accessibility, but this is like an admin interface tool used in factories where we know that there are not going to be any users which have accessibility needs, right? Like, if all of that has been considered and you really end up okay this particular solution that's the best fit in our case fine not a smell but often enough what i see and i'm going to make an example from my work right now is that you have an have a decision that might be fine but it's been made out of the air quotes wrong motivations we had for example recently like we were working on something new at my place and where we've shipped an mvp kind of to internal testers and what happened is is that for some part of the whole application um, the team decided not to do tests to kind of get this deadline right and if you look at it from the lens of okay you know what this is an mvp we expect things to change anyway right like the first time we had that thing to greet people to do user testing so chances are whatever we write now is going to be changed three months down the road anyway. So having tests now for those particular UI bits, whatever, right? But that was not the motivation. The motivation was, oh, we have a deadline, no tests. <laughs> and that's a smell. Right? Like You can make the same decision, the outcome is the same, but depending on like why you make it, that might be a smell or it might not be a smell. Right. And then, uh, yeah, so Adi already mentioned uh, quite a bit. For me, at least to such kind of things, I do use the configuration files quite a lot. And even if even when it comes to, say, mocking certain modules, for example, you want to call an external API, but when you're running the test, you don't really want to call an external API. And that's when you use a different module, a mock, and you import that mock within the configuration file. And in the main code, wherever it is, you basically access the module or the mock, whichever it is, via the environment variable. So that really makes things a lot simpler. However, I did uh, Credo. I used Credo once. I ran the mix Credo command once, and then it gave a lot of errors saying, this is not how you're supposed to do things, and then this is very risky and all of that. But when thinking specifically about writing tests with very low smells, so to say, I think that helps a lot. And in general, like when you want to have different configurations, depending on your environment or where you want to run things, it's really good or very helpful to have different configuration files for it. So really more uh, in the lines of having a lot of, not a lot of, uh, separating configuration, such details within a general config file, depending on whatever environment that you have. Yeah, I, I think that, that kind of goes into the direction of what we said earlier, right? Like you want to cut down your problem into well, testable chunks at the end of the day, right? And like one one pattern you can be using there is, and then it's basically dependency injection at that point, right? Like you have a thing which does something and you don't want to do the real thing in your test. So you inject something that does something differently. The, the, the pattern used in Elixir is bit different from what you tend to do in, in other languages. Although, of course, you can also pass in the module to be called for whatever you want to be doing. But I've, honestly, I haven't seen that happen very often. Usually it happens through like behaviors with like when mocks and then like things being accessed from the application configuration. But it all boils down to, well, divide and conquer. You're figuring out, okay, those are the things I want to be tested in this test and those are the things I don't want to be tested. And I'm making making decisions on why, where to make, where to divide it. Yeah. Absolutely. We've gone full circle. (laughs) (laughs) And then a lot of the discussion also goes towards how you use mocks. And then I read a great article about uh, mocking as a noun as opposed to mocking as a verb. And Mm -hmm. consequently written by Jose himself. And it really explains very, very clearly about what the intent is and why why should you follow something, a framework like this. He talks mainly about mocking as a noun. And at work also, we do it quite a lot. We encourage it so much to the point that even in the take-home assignment for 
applicants, we actually write mock as a noun, mock as a noun. So it's a very important deal for us there. Yes, I mean, like, and depending on how specifically you do this, there are also some opinionated libraries out there to make like injecting mocks easier. I heard this one library called Knigger. Sorry, this is a shameless self-pitch. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole bunch of different ways you can go about this. And, and honestly, that's that, that a topic for another podcast, I would be saying. Uh, yeah, definitely, for sure. So, Kevin, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Oh, it was uh, a pleasure being here as well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you and like ask questions, how can they do be best do that? Oh, so, well, the primary way is everyone can email me. My email address is kevinam99.work at gmail.com. So for these things, I tend to use that email account. Otherwise, you can reach out to me on Twitter. It's never loquacious because I don't talk a lot. And LinkedIn as well. Just search for Kevin Matthew. Uh, Kevin A. Matthew. Matthew, yeah. And you'll find me. Yes. And uh, of course, yeah, my work email is kevin.matthew at kiwi.com. Q-I-I-B-E-E. So that's where we do the, as I mentioned earlier, we run loyalty programs for brands on the blockchain. If anyone is interested in, do reach out to us and we can talk. Nice. Are you, are you hiring right now? Uh, right now, unfortunately, no. Maybe for other okay. vehicles, but not tech. Yeah. Okay. I'm just yeah. was thinking about it. Make, making sure people are if people are interested, right? That they know. Okay, then I'm going to transition to picks, and I want to get a rust pick from you, Ellen. I've not had a rust pick in a very long time. Please don't disappoint me. Oh wow, a rust one. I had a, a game picked out, but if you give me a, a moment, maybe I can find a rust pick for you. <laughs> No, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, this is a game I have not played yet, but I'm looking to play. It's out on Early Access, Starship Troopers Extermination. Have you guys seen this one yet? Mm, nope. Oh, it's like, since the movie came out, it's like a perfect game to play. And yeah, now it's uh, out on Early Access and it looks like a lot of fun. It's like 16 players online, same time, FPS. It's, I, there's some videos online of people playing it and it looks awesome. Basically, it's Early Access, but it seems really stable compared to, you know, the famous Gollum or these other ones that came out recently that are just big bombs. So I think people should probably check it out if you have it on Steam. So yeah, that's my pick. Nice. Adi, what are your picks for this week? Yeah, I don't have any video game picks, but I got a Rust-ish pick. Checked out this new uh, text editor because I haven't really changed my NeoVim configuration since 2014. Is it um, No, it's Helix. Oh, Helix, yeah. Yeah, it is uh, terminal-based. Again, those are the ones I like. It's written in Rust. It's very much inspired by Cocoon and NeoVim. It's still, I don't think it's ready for me to replace <laughs> my NeoVim with, but I've been playing with it. It's a lot faster. It's supports tree sitter built in so that just means you know any languages that tree sitter has get highlighting and stuff like that and the language server stuff as well it's also gpu accelerated which is a lot better done than neovim because in rust um, makes it a lot easier to build applications like that so it's very snappy very quick but yeah i don't think it's quite ready to replace my neovim configurations i have like what sasha was saying i have a pretty complex set of configurations for my neovim so hoping one day i can switch to helix so that's the first pick i got a, I got three more i'm gonna do a self-promotion again uh looks like calling out my book is working and a lot of people a lot of you have pre-ordered it so i'm gonna do it again my book is out or well, out to you can buy it <laughs> it'll be the hard hard copy uh, i think they're shipping mid-june but the kindle one can be part right now so yeah buy it it teaches you how to build a small non-production version of phoenix the first part of the book has no metaprogramming we built a web server and all that and the next part we wrap the whole thing around in a metaprogramming interface obviously every part every chapter at the end has a testing section so teaches how to test every small <laughs> part of that 100 good coverage right <laughs> so uh yeah so check that out a another kind of like short pitch self promotion whatever um i spent a lot of money on zapier a good amount of money a month and I just hate the fact that as an engineer who loves to code, I spend money on automation software, <laughs> books about or something. And so this uh, last last weekend, I was on vacation, and on my way back, I was on a six-hour drive. My wife was driving, and I'm like, I'll just build it. So six hours, 100% code coverage. I built a small version of Zapier. If you guys want to try it, obviously free. I'm not going to take money for it. Feel free to try it. It has integration with Google Calendar, Slack, PagerDuty, a lot of cool things. I might open source it 
when I feel it's ready. <laughs> but if you guys want to try the application, I will put a link over here. I'll have to approve you as a user. So reach out to me if you're curious, if you wanted to place your Zapier with an Elixir application, um, um, which will be open source hopefully soon. So uh, yeah, it's called Adapter Ninja. Again, I'll leave it leave the link. I mean, it's actually adapter.ninja is the link, but I'll still leave a link in the description. And last, but definitely not the least, ElixirConf. Uh, uh, early bird tickets are available to buy. I will be there maybe as a speaker, depending on uh, when they schedule my talk, because I can only come there for the first day. But yeah, if you guys want to buy early bird ticket, hang out with me, reach out to me, reach out to me through my email. I'll be happy to talk to people about anything. Yep, that's it. Wow, that was a, an impressive series of picks. Not gonna lie, <laughs> uh, I might want to talk with you about this self-built version of Sepia because I wanted to do not something similar, but like also like event-driven action outcome for a Discord, disc, in the context of Discord. So I'm yeah, curious how. how you how you went ahead of doing that okay kevin do you have any picks oh well, well it's not as well thought out as alan and adi has went but yeah building on top of it as alan said uh, about the video game is quite interesting to see over there but however i never used to play a lot of video games as a kid so uh from a video games perspective i would recommend a lot a lot nfs most wanted 2005 i still get nostalgic about it i can't play it i have a mac now so uh, whenever i get a windows yeah i might try to get it then the other thing is that my favorite thing about the uh, my environment about coding is the chat gpt extension within uh, vs code I'm not sure what it's fully called yet, but I think if you just look for ChatGPT and you'll just get it. So the, what it is, is that it sits on the side navigation bar in your VS Code and then just click it. It opens a prompt to just put in your questions, whatever you want, and then it will give you answers. So you don't need to log into your account. You don't need to have an API key, any of that. It'll just You post your query and then you just get answers. So in I've tried, I've actually successfully integrated it into my daily workflow mainly it's because to debug something or to implement certain functionalities or certain functions rather and it just gives answers of course it's not giving the correct answers 100% of the time you still need to test everything to see yeah if it's really doing the job other one is i'm not sure if a lot of people have this i had this by default which is the git integration with vs code sad to say that i don't use the git command line a lot because the extension itself makes things a lot easy especially when you want to add a certain very specific files you just need to click an icon and then it just does it whereas with the command line it just gets quite long and you need to remember a lot of commands if you want to do something very specific and yes uh, with respect to places, rather, uh, I'm traveling right now. So right now I'm speaking from Bucharest, Romania. So very beautiful place, uh, nice food, nice people everywhere. I was in Italy the last month. So very good places in Europe to visit and work out of, work from. And yeah, do visit anytime you get a chance to. Yes, that's it from me. Thank you. I've never been to Romania, but I've always wanted to visit. I mean, I, I live in Europe. So there's honestly no excuse. But <laughs> oh, Romania is amazing. Like I, I really, it's it's my first time, and then it's nothing like what I expected. I was expecting something from what I've seen in the Captain America movies, <laughs> how it is. But yeah, it's nothing like that. It's it's it's, it's really beautiful. It's very well organized and yeah nice then i'm gonna round us up with some picks of my own uh, first of all i want to specifically pick the blog post i mentioned earlier it's like this rust from rust blog from 2017 march uh, language economics uh, it's going to be in the show notes i suggest everyone to read it out it's, uh, to check it out it's a very short read and it's really like, like i said there's a reasoning footprint idea that really got stuck in my brain obviously this thing being six years old and i still remember it then i want to have a little engineering pick because i never like I, I thought of it earlier when we were talking about like testing workflows, but the opportunity never came to like pitch it. So now I'm going to do it as a pick. And that is a little, I would presume, not well known flag for mixed test, which is mixed test dash dash stale. And mixed dash dash test stale only runs the co test tests that 
have been impacted since the last time you ran it. So basically it figures out, okay, which files were changed from the previous time you compiled, from the previous time you ran it. And the only those, the, only the test files that actually are accessing anything that got kind of changed, only those get run. And I usually use it in a setup where I have like a file watcher running locally, right? Like something that kind of notices every time I, I change a file on disk and then just keeps running that over and over and over. So it automatically always runs the test that got impacted by the change i literally just did so that's my workflow nowadays and it's like kind of a bit a bit of a replacement for the one i mentioned earlier with space space max it's decently fine i have written some own little command line tools for, for it to make it a little bit easier but in all in all you just need a file watcher watch watch the files in your lib folder then run this mix test that's just stale and it works surprisingly well and surprisingly um, straightforward and then last but not least uh, i also want to do a game pick and that is a multiplayer game i've been enjoying very much recently it's free to play and it's also pretty much on like all platforms i think even on mobile it's called omega strikers and it's like this weird mix of like hero based gameplay like like league of legends or whatever or like overwatch but with football so <laughs> you have basically hero based football or soccer rather to give like with the german the, the european version and it's a lot of fun it's honestly a lot of fun obviously it, it finances itself through microtransactions as a free-to-play game but also as most free-to-play games nowadays those are well skins and cosmetics and stuff and they have a season pass and everything so you really can get a, a lot a lot of fun out of this game just from playing it for free and it's on mobile it works surprisingly well on mobile i gotta say so yeah that is that is my pick for this for this week in the terms of of nerdy nerdy stuff me uh, that i'm doing okay then again thank you for being here kevin thank you for having this amazing discussion with us thank you for having me as well thank you and thank you adi for being as usual our testing guru <laughs> <laughs> and I hope you all have a nice week and tune in next time with another episode of Elixir Mix. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>